Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. The show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 38, The Winchester Mystery House. First off, listeners, I apologize if I sound horrible. I currently have a cold, so that's loads of fun. Nonetheless, I have an episode for you and one that I think you'll find interesting. It's time to get back to my home state and discuss one of its best known creepy tales, that of Sarah Winchester and her house. This is a story that most Californians know or think they know and it's commonly told even outside of my home state. As the tale goes, Sarah Lockwood Party was born in either 1838 or 1840, depending on which source you consult, and grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. In her early 20s, she married William Winchester, who was the heir to the Winchester Rifle Company. Yes, that is the Winchester, as in the famous gun that won the West and was responsible for the deaths of many Native Americans, as well as more than a few settlers and criminals. In the early 1880s, both William and the couple's only child died within a short period of time, leaving Sarah bereft and distraught. In desperation, she went to Boston to speak with a medium named Adam Coons, who she hoped would be able to contact her deceased family members, Adam Coons made contact with William Spirit, who reported that many thousands of spirits of people killed by Winchester rifles were tormenting him and would continue to do so until their demands were met. What's more, these same spirits were responsible for both William's death and the death of their baby. Coons relayed the demands of the spirits to Sarah. She was to move out west, to the west that those rifles had won through violence and build a house that would become home to the spirits. She must never stop building, not even for an hour, for if construction ever stopped, she would die, her husband's spirit would continue in torment, and she would join him in an eternity of suffering. Sarah traveled west to a place that she had never been before and began searching for somewhere to build her house. In the small city of San Jose, California, She found an eight-bedroom farmhouse and knew that she had found the foundation of the home that she would build for the spirits. She used her fortune, derived from the Winchester Company, to begin renovations, building out from the old farmhouse and constructing a large, sprawling edifice that would eventually include over 700 rooms, although only 160 survive today. Included among these rooms was the infamous Blue Room, in which she held seances every night from 1 a.m. to 2 a.m. in order to receive instructions from the spirits on what to build next. 
The seance was initiated with the tolling of the bell in a tower that she had constructed, and the rope to ring the bell could only be reached by a secret passage known to only one servant. In addition to ringing the bell, the servant also had the responsibility of contacting a nearby observatory to ensure that a watch hung on the bell would be set to the exact right time in order to summon the spirits and dismiss them on a precise schedule. Sarah would preside over her meetings with the spirits clad in a gown that bore occult symbols to better control the situation. While she was willing to commune with spirits, Sarah limited her contact with living humans as much as possible becoming a reclusive shut-in who was increasingly fearful of supernatural retribution and less trusting of those around her. Sarah feared that the evil spirits would be able to enter her home outside of the designated and controlled seance safe places, so she built in a confusing manner, incorporating passageways and stairways that ended without reaching rooms. She also incorporated the number 13 into many things, 13 windows in one room, 13 coat hooks in another, 13 cupolas in the greenhouse, etc., all to ward off evil spirits. She even went so far as to sleep in a different room every night in order to further confuse vengeful ghosts. Nonetheless, when the 1906 earthquake struck, waking Sarah and damaging her home, she initially believed it to be the evil spirits coming to take her. While Sarah feared the evil spirits, she welcomed those spirits who she felt were deserving. She hosted lavish dinner parties attended solely by her and 12 spirits, the number 13 again. And when 13 of an item wouldn't do, she would use multiples of 13, 26, 39, 52, and so on. She also played piano and organ, despite pain in her arthritic fingers, in an effort to provide the spirits with entertainment and to keep them appeased. Still, this may not have kept them completely at bay. Sarah is said to have once gone to the wine cellar and found a black handprint on the wall, which the spirits informed her at that night's seance was the handprint of a demon. Sarah took this as a sign to become a teetotaler and had the wine cellar bricked off. To this day, the wine cellar remains unfound. Sarah became increasingly isolated, turning away guests, even such luminaries as Theodore Roosevelt and Mary Baker Eddy. However, she did welcome Harry Houdini, who, despite his time spent debunking spiritualism, never spoke of his visit to the house aside from acknowledging that he had made the visit. According to Dennis William Houck's Directory of Haunted Places, when Sarah Winchester died in 1922, her will left the house to her niece with the provision that the spirits continue to be welcomed and provided for. However, multiple sources also state that the work stopped immediately after her death and that there are still half-driven nails sticking out of boards where workers halted and never returned. While there appears to have been some money left, the fortune that Sarah Winchester had inherited had been largely depleted through this Quixotic building project, and in the end, it did not prevent her death. Her will was, of course, divided into 13 parts, and the safe that contained it also included locks of her husband's hair and her daughter's hair. Many psychics, including Sylvia Brown, Joy Adams, Jane Borgen, and Warren Kapling, have visited the house and contacted various different spirits there. Joy Adams, in fact, believes that she channeled and had her body briefly taken over by Sarah Winchester herself. 
Staff members working at the house continue to have strange experiences with the otherworldly, including seeing floating balls of light and hearing organ music, whispering voices, and noises like the slamming of doors. Visitors have reported seeing silhouettes of people suddenly appear in photographs, and in other cases, clear images of people in the photographs that were not present at the time that the picture was taken. Many people have reported seeing workers in 19th and early 20th century clothing wandering the house, and more than one has reported seeing the elderly Mrs. Winchester herself. Dennis Houck states that the management contains a file of affidavits from people who have witnessed strange events in the house. Commentary. So that's the story as it is so often told. The truth is very, very different. I don't typically get into the process of debunking ghost stories because I'm far more interested in the way that the stories spread and what causes them to stick around than I am in whether or not they are true. But this is one of those cases where stripping away the nonsense leads us to some interesting ideas about how myths are created and propagated, especially when commerce is involved. There's a reason why I started my telling by saying, as the tale goes. The fact of the matter is that the tale that everyone knows is not the truth. To start with, while most information given about Sarah Winchester's birth, marriage, family tragedies, move to California, and the date of her death are correct in terms of what happened, Almost everything else that much of the public knows about Sarah Winchester is a fabrication. And even the timetable for many of the events that truly did happen is just flat out wrong. For example, it is often said that her husband and only child died within months of each other when their deaths were actually nearly 16 years apart. And as we will see, much else that passes for public knowledge of Sarah Winchester is incorrect. But the how and the why of the story getting so warped tells us quite a bit about the social currents in which it formed and in which it still continues to thrive to this day. That so much of what is widely circulated about Sarah Winchester is false is a shame, as she was pretty remarkable. Her father was a financially successful carpenter who invited a wide range of intellectuals to the home, including scholars, abolitionists, and members of the free thought movement, a movement that held that beliefs should not be based on authority, tradition, revelation, or dogma, but should instead be based on reason, evidence, and logic. Sarah, influenced by this environment and being quite intelligent, became an excellent student excelling in school and becoming proficient in multiple languages. Incidentally, while I will refer to her by her given name of Sarah throughout this episode, her family referred to her as Sally, the name of her maternal grandmother. In 1862, Sarah married William Winchester, son of Oliver Winchester, owner of a local shirt manufacturer. Oliver Winchester bought the Volcanic Arms Company and, in 1866, used it as the basis to form the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, which would go on to manufacture the firearms popular with many people in the then Wild West, especially the Winchester Model 1873 rifle. 
The Winchester Company was phenomenally successful, and William inherited the company from his father. Though intelligent, wealthy, and by most accounts, a beauty, Sarah's life suffered many of the same setbacks as other people of the 19th century. She gave birth to only one child, a daughter, who died due to medical problems in 1866. Her husband contracted tuberculosis and, after years of struggle, died in 1881, leaving Sarah with a fortune and either a 48% or 50% stake in the Winchester Company. Sources vary on how much of the company she owned. So far, other than the details regarding Sarah's intellectual abilities and the dates of her husband and daughter's death relative to each other, this all follows the common story quite well. But it is at this point that the tale in common circulation begins to deviate from reality. The initial changes are quite small. For example, as far as biographer Mary Jo Ignafo can tell, there never was a medium by the name of Adam Coons in Boston, and there is little to no evidence that Sarah Winchester had involvement with the spiritualist movement or community, though it was at its high watermark during her life. There is no reason to think that it was a belief in spirits that inspired Sarah to move out west. Rather than being spurred by a fear of spirits, Sarah Winchester's move west was the result of a much more earthly and mundane factor. She and her husband had visited the West Coast in 1870 when the Winchester Company established offices in San Francisco for the West Coast distribution of rifles. She had liked the West Coast when she visited, finding it a pleasant place. As I said earlier, although her daughter and her husband did both die, it was not within months of each other as is often claimed. The baby had died more than 15 years earlier than her husband. However, there was a rash of family deaths around the time of her husband's death, including Sarah's father-in-law and her mother. Other deaths in the family occurred in the early 1880s as well, and she was likely feeling rather depressed. Now, as I suspect that many listeners will say, well, there you go, too many deaths in the family, that drove her to the spiritualists, and then they drove her out west, I have to stress, while there were a lot of deaths in a short time around one person, and she would almost certainly have been considered rather unfortunate, such deaths were, unfortunately, a common thing in the 19th century. So it seems unlikely that Sarah was uniquely bereft compared to her contemporaries. This was the 19th century, where death was more common due to limited medical capabilities. Also, I want to point out again that the medium that she is often said to have visited appears to have never actually existed. So, no, she doesn't appear to have been drawn into a building frenzy through spiritualism. Even with all of these family deaths, Sarah was not completely alone. She still had close family members alive including her sister Antoinette, who was married to William Sprague, the newly appointed president of Mills College in Oakland, not too far from San Jose. There is another factor that likely came into play as well. In the late 19th century, there was a lot of popular writing about the health benefits of the Western U.S. Some of it was, frankly, probably nonsense. But there were elements that actually were sensible. The Western U.S. is more arid than the Eastern and Southern U.S., and in a period of time before modern climate control, it appears to be the case that this aridity likely did benefit people with some chronic respiratory conditions. 
Consider that many Western landmarks, including locations in Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and California, were established as health spas. In fact, my paternal grandfather's family moved out to California in the 1930s, specifically because their family doctor advised my great-grandfather that the move would benefit his health. Considering that one of her sisters was moving to California anyway, that Sarah had previously visited the Bay Area and found it to her liking, and that many claimed the environment in California was conducive to health and healing, it makes perfect sense that Sarah Winchester would come to California. And San Jose was an ideal location. In contrast to the San Jose of 2022, land was relatively cheap. San Jose itself was a small city with a population just north of 12,000 people, supported in large part by fruit orchards, as well as some industrial and government jobs. Also, Sarah did not move alone. Her sister Isabel and Isabel's family came along with the intention that Sarah would purchase and expand a house to provide plenty of room for all of them. Sarah was, by many accounts, an introvert, but she wasn't a reclusive spinster but rather someone who enjoyed being with her family and wished them to live with her. Sarah bought an eight-bedroom farmhouse, which she named Yanada Via, or Plain View, or View of the Plain, and set about having it expanded. However, Antoinette's husband lost his job at Mills College quickly and moved with his wife to a different university in North Dakota. Isabel and her family also moved away soon after to San Francisco and were, therefore, nearby, but not within an easy distance. Isabel's daughter, Marion, stayed with Sarah and was, in all but legal status, adopted by her. So Sarah's initial reason for expanding Yanada Via essentially vanished, and yet she began and continued to expand it anyway. She initially hired professional architects, but stopped using their services when she found that she liked designing the rooms herself. Keep in mind, she had demonstrated intellectual gifts from early in life and appeared to have been capable of designing, so long as she trusted experienced builders to ensure that what she designed would be safe, and all indications are that she did just that. Sarah Winchester continued to expand the house, adding new rooms, demolishing old ones, and furnishing them with finery. In some cases, architectural oddities are the result of the fact that there was no overseeing architect planning everything out just one woman with her own interest who seemed to be building for the sake of building. Other oddities resulted from damage from the 1906 earthquake, requiring that rooms be closed off so that doors and windows became useless. To make matters more confused, later owners intentionally created further oddities for the purpose of enhancing the disorienting weirdness of the house. So yes, the house was very strange, and still is, and Sarah Winchester's desire to continue building it was rather odd. And as someone who just went through a home expansion project, I am very baffled by this. But according to both the biographer Mary Jo Ignafo and writer Colin Dickey, both of whom did a fair amount of research on the subject of Sarah Winchester and her house, there is no evidence that a fear of spirits had anything to do with the renovations and additions. This was certainly an eccentric way to spend the second half of her life, but no more eccentric than many other people in the American West, just better funded than most. And while the legend holds that Sarah Winchester had workers going 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so that construction would never stop and she would not die, 
The truth is that construction took place during normal work hours and it stopped sometimes for months at a time. Additionally, there may have been reasons for Sarah Winchester's continued construction at Yanadavia beyond simply wanting to build. Bruce Spoon, in his 1951 master's thesis from San Jose State University, notes that Sarah employed quite a lot of people, from builders to gardeners to household staff. All indications are that she paid them very well and hired a diverse group of men and women and from all ethnicities. She provided paid holidays at a time when this was not the norm and even paid workers on days when they could not work due to excessive heat. Construction on the house took place during a period of economic upheaval in the United States, which at times hit the West Coast particularly hard. We know that she was a philanthropist throughout her life, and she tended to give anonymously, or at least discreetly. Her will was, contrary to the popular tale, well thought out and provided for beneficiaries, but also donated huge sums of money to charitable causes, especially hospitals. These are not the marks of someone who had squandered her fortune away trying to fend off vengeful ghosts or who catered to superstition in her legacy. There is reason to think that at least some of the construction may have been a make-work program to keep people employed during times of uncertainty. While this is hard to prove, it is consistent with a lot of what we can confirm of Mrs. Winchester's personality and habits, certainly more so than the idea that she was building out of fear. The late 19th and early 20th century was a time of eccentrics in California. Keep in mind that Sarah Winchester's time in the region was immediately preceded by the death of Joshua Abraham Norton, who had appointed himself Emperor of the United States and Protector of Mexico. Also, Sarah Winchester was the contemporary of Lily Hitchcock Coit, a tough heiress who gambled war men's clothes and spent much of her time hanging out with firefighters, even riding with them to fires. Coit even left her own architectural mark by leaving funding in her will for a tower in the shape of a fire nozzle in San Francisco. So Sarah Winchester was eccentric, certainly, but she wasn't entirely out of place among the personalities of the Bay Area. However, while Emperor Norton and Lily Coit were embraced as California icons, Sarah Winchester was not, and her personal habits may be part of it. While Coit and Norton were both vocal and seemed to beg for attention, Sarah Winchester was, by most accounts, withdrawn. Some call her a recluse, but I personally get the impression that she was more of an introvert, happy in the company of some, but shy and not necessarily outgoing, and I can absolutely relate to that. While Norton was poor and made himself into something of a weird neighborhood mascot, and Coit's activities had her throwing herself into the thick of the action with emergency services, Sarah Winchester apparently preferred to keep to herself and continue building. While she arguably did more good for her community than other notable figures of the time, she was quieter about her good works. She was an eccentric, but a less public one, making her mysterious, and therefore an easier target for derision. She may not have been aware of the reputation that she was gaining, and if she was aware, she may not have cared, or at least didn't care enough to do much about it. On top of that, the very economic upheavals that she was protecting her employees from might have made her spending stand out in a suspicious way. At a time when economic panics and depressions made life for the poor and even the moderately well-to-do uncertain, here was this strange, reclusive, and extraordinarily wealthy widow building a house that she didn't need and not even taking the time to appreciate it. It was conspicuous consumption and it drew attention. 
It's a curious thing looking at this from 2022 when people who hoard wealth are often hailed as job creators, even when they take moves to slash employment across large sectors of the economy. But we look at Sarah Winchester, who was genuinely creating jobs, and see that she was viewed as suspect because of the very spending habits that caused that job creation. The origin of the modern Winchester legend began in 1895 when the San Jose Daily News published an article by an anonymous author titled, Strange Story, A Woman Who Thinks She'll Die When Her House Is Built. The article describes the admittedly bizarre nature of the house, and then went on to claim that it is subject to continuous work because Sarah Winchester is convinced that she will die when it is completed. No evidence was provided to support this claim, it all appears to be rumor reported as fact, and it was reported anonymously. As Colin Dickery points out, readers of the time would have, of course, been familiar with the character of Miss Havisham of Charles Dickens' novel Great Expectations. The image of the jilted bride who lives alone except for an adopted girl in a decaying mansion is certainly called up by the Daily News article, which describes the huge and labyrinthine mansion occupied solely by Mrs. Winchester and her niece. So was Sarah Winchester a Miss Havisham figure? Let's look at what they had and did not have in common. Miss Havisham was not the villain of Great Expectations, but she is haunted, not by ghosts or evil spirits, but by her grief over being left at the altar on her wedding day. This loss had driven her mad, trapping her and her home, and never letting either move on or change. It is implied that the deaths of Sarah Winchester's husband and daughter had driven her mad and made her retreat into superstition, but in a parallel but contrary direction from the fictional Miss Havisham, Sarah Winchester could not let her home stop being changed. Again, Sarah Winchester's constant construction was certainly strange and may have been a sign of some mental health problems but there is no reason to believe that she was a mad woman as opposed to someone who simply felt a particular compulsion that she had the means to act upon. And Sarah Winchester had a reputation amongst those who did business with her as an intelligent and shrewd businesswoman. Both during her life and afterwards, as the stories of her alleged supernatural fixation began to really take off, many of those who had done business with her spoke up and were very vocal about her intelligence and capability. It appears that those who knew Sarah, including friends, family, and business partners, were displeased by this character assassination, but they were generally ignored in favor of the sensationalism. Of course, Sarah Winchester did eventually die. On September 5, 1922, while being attended to by the rather oddly named Dr. Euthanasia Mead, yes, that does appear to have been his real name, Sarah Winchester breathed her last. Her will was executed, and her assets divided and sold. Yanadavia, however, was a bit of a problem, because it was so strange, confusing, idiosyncratic, and ungainly, it was deemed to be of no value as a piece of real estate. A local investor bought it and leased it to John and Maine Brown, who had been involved in a Canadian amusement park called the Crystal Beach Resort. The resort had included a house of mystery as one of its attractions, and it appears that the Browns had an interest in turning Sarah Winchester's house into a tourist attraction. Five months after Sarah Winchester's death, the Browns began providing tours of the home, and whether they did so intentionally or not, this revived the late 19th century claims that Sarah Winchester had built it to be a mystical bulwark against vengeful spirits. Eventually, the Browns managed to purchase the house. 
As time went on, the Browns, and then later the Winchester Investments LLC, which represents the descendants of the Browns, continued to operate the house. Early on, changes were made, and some were likely made for the purpose of better preservation. Some, however, seem a bit less noble in their goal. For example, the tour guides at the house often say that Sarah had an obsession with the number 13 and had 13 windows in one room, 13 hooks in the seance room, 13 overflow drain holes in the sink, etc., etc. However, later examination and investigation indicates that Sarah Winchester had no real interest in the number 13, and it was later owners who either added features or removed features to make 13 a recurring number. As anyone who visits, purchases a rather expensive ticket, and takes one of the offered tours will know, the tour guides are trained to give the spiel that paints Sarah Winchester as the frightened shut-in she was portrayed in in that 1895 article. Moreover, inaccurate descriptions have been inserted regarding various rooms in the house. For example, the room known as the Blue Room or the Seance Room, where Sarah Winchester would reportedly receive nightly instructions from the spirits on what to do in the house next, was actually the office of the head gardener who managed a large gardening staff. Sarah was a private person, but it would be too far to call her a shut-in. She had other homes that she spent time at, she visited friends and family, and she reportedly worked directly with her employees and was quite generous with them. It is worth noting, though, that Harry Houdini did in fact visit the house, but he did so after Sarah's death and at the behest of the Browns. My guess is that they felt that having someone associated with the mystical, even if he was primarily a debunker, would help cement the house's reputation. But as the Browns are long since gone, we can't ask them. The unfair reputation of Sarah Winchester as a superstitious recluse continued to spread. The flames were fanned as much by mouth-to-mouth -mouth retellings as by sensationalistic write-ups and increasingly weird books on the supernatural, several of which I own copies of, let's be honest. There was more sales than seance involved in the spread of the Winchester legend. And let's not forget the larger cultural trends. While the Wild West is still celebrated, it was largely a myth and not a reality by the early 20th century. And people began to reappraise aspects of it. The gun that won the West, as the Winchester rifle was marketed, began to be seen as the tool of violence rather than a marker of rugged individualism. And while it was still decades before most people in the United States really began to think about the treatment of Native Americans under the doctrine of manifest destiny, an uneasiness had begun to creep into society regarding the fact that the land had been taken by force and often through killing from the people already living on it. Contemporary with and parallel to the rise of the Winchester Mystery House as a tourist spot and a cultural phenomenon, historians and anthropologists began to seriously examine the treatment of Native Americans at the hands of white settlers. In this setting, the idea that Sarah Winchester had suffered because she was the recipient of a fortune made off of a weapon associated with killing those same people is not surprising. That these stories took on a lurid rather than reflective tone is also not surprising, as that is often the case with facts of history with which we are uncomfortable. As the 20th century rolled on and both spiritualism and the obsession with winning the West faded into the background, the story of Sarah and her spooky mansion has nonetheless remained popular. In part, this is simply a function of it being a good ghost story. Such stories have a viral nature, are easy to tell, and are easy to digest and remember, but it is also very adaptable. 
In the 1960s and 70s, as interest in the occult began to rise again, the Winchester Mystery House and the story associated with it held elements that could be celebrated by proponents of the occult while also being used as warnings by those who feared the rise of the occult. In the 1970s and 80s, as people worried about Colt's brainwashing people, the story of Sarah Winchester squandering her fortune at the urging of a crooked medium could serve as a warning against trusting those who provide magical answers to your worries. And indeed, it was in just that context that my parents first told me the story. And, of course, as ghost tourism really began to take off in the late 90s and early 2000s, the Winchester Mystery House has greatly benefited, with shows such as Most Haunted adding a contemporary haunted tourism layer onto the alleged supernatural origins of Sarah Winchester's desire to build. And, of course, the house itself and the story surrounding it has wormed its way into popular culture. Shirley Jackson used it as an inspiration for her 1959 novel, The Haunting of Hill House. And Stephen King cited it as an influence on the seemingly endless halls of the hotel in The Shining, as well as it being a major inspiration on his 2002 television miniseries, Rose Red. So, in essence, the true story of the Winchester Mystery House is the story of how mean-spirited and unfounded local rumors came to be accepted as fact by a large portion of the population due to their sensational nature and frequent retelling and embellishment. As many elements can be shown to be false, and there is evidence that later owners modified the house to add to the spooky factor, there is every reason to think that even elements not touched on in this discussion, such as Sarah Winchester hosting dinners for ghosts, sleeping in different rooms every night, and building the house to confuse spirits, are likely also the result of folklore rather than fact. Indeed, for much of the last 20 years of her life, Sarah Winchester lived at a house that she owned in Atherton, not in the house in San Jose. The story, though specific, contains elements that are endlessly malleable to whatever point a teller may want to make. If you want to tell people about how the wealthy can be easily duped and manipulated, you can use this story. If you want to warn of the dangers of inheriting a cursed fortune, expressing unease with either money made off of weapons or other dubious ends, or even unease with capitalism in general, you can use this story. Do you want to warn of the dangers of the occult, either spiritually or financially? Well, you can use this story. And by worming its way through popular culture, the story of Sarah Winchester, eccentric shut-in afraid of ghosts, has become accepted as fact even by those who don't believe in ghosts. And frankly, all of this is unfortunate, as the truth about Sarah Winchester is pretty interesting. She was a trailblazing 19th century businesswoman who gave freely to charity and likely saved a number of families from poverty during the chaotic late 19th century. She deserves better than to be portrayed as a superstitious and frightened lonely widow. Finally, what are the people who claim to have experienced supernatural events at the house? Well, I can't say with any certainty what anyone else did or didn't experience, but I can say that there is a factor to be considered, psychological priming. Remember, we don't simply experience things through our senses. Our senses are processed through our brains, and we assign various stimuli meaning, often without realizing it. So when you are in a place where you are told that you will experience the weird and the bizarre, you are set up to interpret stimuli that you might otherwise write off, such as feeling breezes, briefly glimpsing things that you can't quite make out, hearing unfamiliar sounds, seeing people in a photo that you don't recall walking into frame, etc., as being something spookier than what they may actually be. 
being told that the quirkiness of the house is the result of either supernatural beliefs or the supernatural itself, and increased emphasis in recent years by ghost tourism claims that the house wasn't simply built out of fear of spirits, but is itself haunted, will prepare you to filter your experiences through those ideas and may lead you to place any experience that you don't understand in the category of the ghostly. As for psychics, well, the anthropological research literature, as well as a fair amount of psychological and neurology research, has identified factors that can lead a perfectly reasonable and sane person to believe that they are having profound contacts with spirits, gods, or other entities. That is a subject that is quite large and beyond the scope of this podcast episode, but if you are interested, I would suggest looking up ethnographies of shamanism and research on what is called the third man phenomenon as starting points. That said, while there are known potential explanations, these things can, nonetheless, leave a profound impression on those who experience them. Perhaps there really are psychics in the world, but I would want to see something that couldn't be explained by a phenomenon that I am familiar with. My point here is simply to note that I don't dismiss people who describe themselves as psychics as either crooks or fools, as I don't think they are, but I am nonetheless cautious in accepting psychics' experience as evidence. Sylvia Brown is the psychic most often mentioned regarding the Winchester Mystery House, and while I am inclined to think that most psychics are not trying to defraud anyone, I have no respect for Sylvia Brown, nor am I inclined to think that she was honest. Whether or not she ever genuinely believed herself to have psychic powers, as time went on, she increasingly used her fame as a psychic to make claims that were both overly sensationalistic and provably false. Sometimes these claims were just kind of wacky or harmless, but at other times she would tell the family members of missing persons things that she allegedly knew through her powers, which were routinely wrong and often caused unneeded suffering. Often these claims were made regarding ongoing investigations, which had the potential to mislead anyone who believed them, though I don't know that she was ever taken seriously by police. In 2001, she even agreed to take on James Randi's $1 million challenge to prove her psychic abilities, and then continuously failed to follow up or respond to questions. She did eventually make numerous claims about the conditions that would have to be met before she would take the challenge, and yet she failed to take it even when those conditions were met. Make of that what you will. I have a hard time with someone who keeps making false predictions and says that they are open to being tested but keeps refusing to actually do so. It all doesn't exactly win credibility in my book. Again, I usually find the debunking of ghost stories to be rather dull. There are a large number of explanations for many common ghostly experiences, and there are some experiences that are genuinely odd or not currently explicable. What interests me is why people share the stories and what we get out of it. But Sarah Winchester provides a case where debunking the story is necessary to understand why it is shared and what is gotten out of it. It began as baseless local gossip and rumor, had layers added over the years, and ended up as such a malleable story that it could be shaped to fit the shifting beliefs, concerns, and agendas of the people of San Jose and later the world at large for over 120 years. Understanding the truth about Sarah Winchester allows us to better understand how the folklore around her works and is spread. And that, in my opinion, is fascinating.
If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!